Hello and welcome. We're just uh, doing a quick audio test this morning as we make sure that everyone's getting connected and is able to uh, hear us. Um, and we'll be getting started here in just a, a couple of seconds. And also I'd like to make a note that it's possible that uh, the, uh, the opening session was running a little bit late. So we may do a few minutes of a staggered start just to make sure that we're um, ready to go with everybody on board. Because I see you, Kyla, but I just want to make sure that we have a few other folks that are here too. So uh, bear with us and be patient. Thank you. Good morning and thank you for joining us. If you're just joining, we're just uh, waiting a few moments to make sure that we have uh, your audio connections are uh, good and that you can hear us as we get ready to start the, uh, the presentation. Uh, I know that the uh, opening session uh, ran a little bit long, so just giving everyone a couple of minutes to get in uh, before we get started. Thank you for your patience. Okay, good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining us. Uh, welcome to the, the uh, well, actually, technically the first session of the National Symposium for Classical Education. Uh, we're glad you're able to join us for this year's COVID edition of the symposium, all online. And we hope to gather together again, once again, next year in Phoenix, all together in person. But uh, as we move forward, we'd just like to very much thank our sponsors for their participation in um, our symposium this year. Let me pull up there really quickly. 
Classical Education Press, Central, Centripetal Press, uh, ASU, ESI, IEW, Cornell University of Dallas. Um, all these fine sponsors are the, are the reason that we're able to get here, be here today and uh, able to uh, meet in a virtual space. Um, you can learn more about the various resources that are designed to support the K-12 classical by visiting the exhibitors tab in the virtual attendee hub. Okay. And so today we'll be talking about um, earth science as a compelling depiction of the natural world. And it'll be presented by uh, Stephen Mitwitty. And he will discuss in a brief synopsis is uh, the rationale for earth science how science fits into other fields, recognizing the limitations of science, uh, viewing curriculum as a tapestry, the scope and sequence of earth science. And in particular, we would like to thank the um, Institute for Excellence in Writing for their sponsorship of this uh, video session. Hi, Andrew Pudewa here. I am the director of the Institute for Excellence in Writing, and we are very, very happy to be sponsoring the National Classical Education Symposium. If you are a five-day-a-week uh, school teacher or administrator, uh, go to IEWschools.com and see what we do at the Institute for Excellence in Writing in terms of cultivating students' language skills. That would be listening, speaking, reading, writing, thinking all important in the study of science, all important in a good education. And I hope you enjoy the rest of the event. Hello, my name is Steve Mitwitty and I have the peculiar privilege of being able to address you today com about passions of mine. First, earth science, but also classical education. And our goal today will be to see exactly how these fit together. Why include earth science in a classical curriculum? On the title slide here, you'll notice that I've given you my email address, smitwitty at randolphschool.net, if you would. Please jot that down just in case after the question and answer time today, you have questions that you'd like to Classical send my education. way. Or if you just and want to continue the today, we'll be to see exactly how course content or about pedagogy, how we teach what we teach. And we'll be going into some of that today. As you'll see here, this is the roadmap for this uh, presentation. We'll begin with a rationale for earth science in a classical curriculum. Why include it? We'll lay some foundations for doing science, how science fits with other fields, how it relates to other areas of knowledge. We'll be honest and admit that science has limitations. And this also is significant in how science relates to other fields of learning. We'll see that curriculum can be viewed as a tapestry. And in, in this presentation, I will be pointing out two particular threads that I think provide a logical warp and woof to the uh, tapestry that we weave in an earth science class. And also 
I will at least make forays into the idea of horizontal integration. I know that John Mays has a talk on this at this conference, at the symposium. And so please, uh, I refer you to John Mays and his uh, great insights about integration, intentional horizontal integration, relating science content to other fields of knowledge. I'll close the talk with reckon by recommending a scope and sequence in a very broad sense, the types of things that should be included in a, a, an earth science class, very broad idea of pacing, as well as I'll recommend a, a textbook that, that I highly value as a resource. So to begin, the rationale for earth science in a classical curriculum boils down to simply this. People have been interested in the earth, in earth processes, earth systems, natural disasters, uh, materials, rocks and minerals since ancient times, through medieval times to modern times. This is an ever contemporary subject because this is the sphere in which we live, right? Although we're surrounded by the atmosphere, we live on the geosphere, we're impacted by the celestial sphere, and we, of course, interact with the hydro idea of pacing, and with as well as sphere. I'll recommend. And so it is significant that, that we that understand how value our as a resource is, is a timeless one. So to begin, the rationale uh, we for also, Earth science, I think, should understand why Earth science is such a critical class, even though often diminished, perhaps, in, in many curricula, uh, even in many public school systems, earth science is sometimes given short shrift. And yet, I would suggest to you that there's critical content in this class if we are to build up wise citizens, if we're going to prepare people for living uh, in the world uh, with wisdom. One great little book that I stumbled on some years ago was this book that's written by uh, Susan Thompson, uh, A Chronology of Geological Thinking from Antiquity to 1899. It's perhaps not the most uh, exhaustive of resources, and yet it begins with thinkers from ancient times all the way up until basically the end of the 19th century, and, and, and basically, just as sort of an in an annotated form, presents different thoughts, contributions, things that were suggested or, or thought or discovered by different thinkers, philosophers, and scientists through the ages. A tremendous book to show kind of the, the timelessness of this subject matter. Another book that I, I came across recently and that I commend to you is Why Geology Matters by Doug McDougall. This is a University of California Press book, came out in, I think, 2011. Uh, but you'll note the subtitle on the side of this image, Decoding the Past, Anticipating the Future. The idea, of course, that McDougall timelessness is trying to subject present here is that if we are to really be prepared for what the future uh, might hold, we need to understand how processes have operated in the past, think about how humans are interacting with those, those various processes and various systems, and then to be thinking about how we going forward may be impacting the future of our planet.
So as we think about laying philosophical foundations, I, I use this quotation with my students. Uh, Harry Bill Myers, who just passed away not too, too long ago, wrote this in a book some years ago. Common sense hankers after a cause for everything, a maker of everything and some kind of purpose behind everything. Now, obviously, in the middle of this quotation, there's this idea of a maker of everything. And obviously, our students may have a number of different uh, worldview presuppositions with which they approach the world. Uh, and, and we're not here today to, to hammer any particular uh, presuppositions with that regard. But think about what Blamires is saying here. The common sense, it would seem that there's something inherent in people that we want to understand a cause. Oh, why are things the way that they are? And, and for what kind of purpose do things exist? And so these are the types of questions as we teach earth science that we can grapple with, at least as we lay a foundation for earth science, to think about how we want to understand because we have this inherent drive. As we lay philosoph philosophical foundations, one of the things that we need to do with our students is to present a unity of knowledge and then a move not only from a desire for grasping true knowledge, but then to make an intentional move from knowledge to wisdom. Uh, I'll be speaking with you, too, about connecting the dots. You know, when we do science, we have we collect data, we have data points, and we want for those data points to make sense. Anyone can collect data. Once you understand how to observe and how to experiment, you can collect data. But the, the real key, whether it's in earth science or sciences in general, or in philosophy or theology or in history, is to understand how our data can be properly connected so that we are getting a true picture of reality. And so as we lay foundations for our students, we need to drive home to them that knowledge must be unified. There has to be a unity of knowledge if everything is going to make sense, if everything's going to fit together. And then it's not enough just to have some, some knowledge, but that we're intent on saying, how do we apply that knowledge? That's really what wisdom is, skill for living. What is a proper use of the knowledge that we acquire? How does that affect decision-making? How does that affect choices? Another thing that I drive home to my students is that we have to reject what I call the Gouldian bargain. Stephen Jay Gould was a paleobiologist at Harvard, a great public voice uh, for uh, laymen uh, and, and uh, a very skilled communicator and a uh, an accomplished scientist. But Stephen Jay Gould had, had an idea that he set forth in his book, Rocks of Ages. And the idea was that of non-overlapping magisteria. What I want to suggest to you is that if we think of things like faith uh, and, and worldview presuppositions, metaphysical things, and science as being so separate that they can never touch one another, why would we engage with those different subjects? Why would we think about philosophy? Why would we think about theology? Why would we think about worldview uh, at all 
if it doesn't relate to the natural world in some way. So his his idea of non-overlapping magisteria and his his general approach in his book Rocks of Ages is uh, is winsome in its ironicism. It's quite a a powerful uh, piece of of uh, polemics, and yet it really doesn't fit together. Is as you'll see from this is a diagram uh, that I use with my students. I call it the three realms of knowing, as you can see, three epistemic realms, three ways that we get to know what we know. And in the scientific realm, we get to know what we know through observation and experimentation. And we seek specifically to answer scientific questions by using those things. In the documentary realm, we want to answer historical questions and we use various kinds of documents. Uh, things like journals or diaries, but interestingly enough, also things like archaeological uh, findings and rocks and fossils are actually documents that we grapple with and that we try to understand, understand what they're telling us about the history of the earth. The metaphysical realm answers what I call ultimate questions, and uh, this can include different things for different people, but at very least, it helps us to to grapple with things like right and wrong and good and bad and fair and unfair and what is truth, what is beautiful, what is good. So uh, this is a diagram that I personally developed uh, about two decades ago. You'll notice that these three realms are actually surrounded by an atmosphere that requires that as we do science or actually as we pursue true knowledge in any field that we are actually understanding that this atmosphere affects everything that we do. I suggest to my students that uh, we have to assume that there is an order, that there's a logic to the way that things work. We expect things to be repeatable uh, when we do experiments, that if we that if all of the variables are are the same, uh, if all of our parameters are just so, that we can do an experiment and get the same results the next time and the next time and the next time. This atmosphere also includes reason. Uh, there is uh, this expectation that what we're doing uh, will make sense. All pursuit of true knowledge involves a measure of creativity. And also, we expect that true knowledge will find application uh, in human experience, that we can solve problems with knowledge that we obtain. Uh, and also that we can express knowledge in things like the arts, that we can take things that we uh, know or, or think that we know and then express those in creative ways, uh, creative activities. So again, we want to understand the unity of knowledge and this intentional move from knowledge to wisdom that we want our students to understand that they're not just filling their heads with, with sludge that can be discarded at some time, but in fact that we want them to understand that knowledge can be powerful in solving problems in understanding the world in which we live, the spheres with which we interact. And 
that we need to connect the dots properly, that just because we collect data doesn't mean that we have answers. We have to properly interpret uh, the data that we have. And then, of course, to reject the idea that, that we can have separate categories of knowledge that never touch any other categories of knowledge. Uh, never the, the twain shall meet, as they say, which is sort of the idea that Stephen Jay Gould presented in his book, Rocks of Ages. One of the things as I lay philosophical foundations with my students for doing science, I want them to recognize that science has limitations. First of all, the scope of science is such that it can only answer scientific questions. It can't answer metaphysical, moral sorts of questions. It can't uh, help us to decipher uh, hist historical uh, documents. So science can only answer scientific questions. We have other realms of knowledge for dealing with those other areas of human inquiry. The other thing, one of the other things that I like to point out to my students are simply that scientists, just as anyone else does, have biases. And uh, I like to tell my students that, you know, sometimes scientists see only what they expect to see or only what they're used to seeing or only what they want to see. And we'll come, come back to that in a moment as we talk about wrong motivations below. But scientists, just like anyone else, can have biases. One of the things I like to point out to my students, and this is significant for us as classical educators, is how significant language is to what we do in science. One of the things that after I graduated from university that I came to realize is, wow, I really have to be I have to communicate orally. I have to communicate uh, in writing. And these things are, are not things that necessarily uh, students will receive even at the university level. And so our curriculum should emphasize a nuanced use of language, a proper use of language, uh, give our students opportunities to discuss, to answer questions, to present findings of their research. One of the other things that I, I bring up with my students is that often scientists can have wrong motivations if their motivation is not to find truth, but to make money or to become famous or to satisfy the expectations of someone in their lives or, or something else. If you're not aiming for something, you're not likely to hit it. It's not impossible that you could stumble upon anything, but Science, scientists can be driven by wrong motivations. And if their focus is not on truth, pursuing and, and grasping true knowledge, then that science is going to be flawed, very likely. I point out to my students that the whole issue of human weakness and fallibility. Scientists get tired, they get hungry, uh, they misperceive things, uh, they, they make mistakes. And so, Human weakness and fallibility affect everyone, not just scientists. And yet scientists are, are not immune uh, from this, this issue. There's also just a widespread availability of falsehood. There's, there's falsehood all around us. Obviously, over the last several years, the whole idea of fake news has become a, a thing that has, uh, well, it's a term that we've heard. It's an idea that we've perhaps grappled with. And it's something to think about with our students. How do we, how do we evaluate a source, uh, for instance? Uh, you know, is this Wikipedia, this particular Wikipedia article, something that we 
could could use at some level? Or do we just say, oh, well, we need to be careful because of the whole idea of a wiki and how it can be edited. And so this idea of a widespread availability of falsehood is one that I like to highlight with this quotation from Tolstoy. I love this quotation. Uh, it showed up in his in his uh, diaries. And listen to, listen to what he says. Truth like gold is to be obtained not by its growth, but by washing away from it all that is not gold. If you are reading this the way that I'm reading it, what Tolstoy is doing is he is likening truth pursuit to panning for gold. I've done this. And let me tell you, panning for gold, if, if, you're, if you're thinking of the tourist traps where you pay a certain amount of money and get a little bag of, of, of salted material, sand and gravel that you wash stuff away and you, you get some baubles out of that, you know, a little piece of turquoise or a little quartz crystal or maybe a little fossil. Well, that's not what panning for gold is like. Panning for gold is backbreaking work. But people do it because of the potential precious payout. And this is no different than, than pursuit of truth. It's hard work. And yet the potential payout is precious. Are we willing to wash away all that is not truth? All of the sand and the gravel. Are we willing to help our students see the significance of washing all of that away to get at what is precious? I like to view curriculum as tapestry. And as uh, you may also hear from, from John Mays in his presentation at this symposium, mastery is in view. And if, if mastery learning is not in view, then what are we about? Uh, John Mays is, uh, is known for, for saying that he wants to break the, the cram, pass, forget cycle. Again, the idea is preparing students to be wise citizens. And so if everything is crammed past, forget, out of sight, out of mind, one ear and out the other. But that is not what we want our students to do. We want them to understand that the type of true knowledge that we're laying hold of and hopefully properly inter interpreting, properly connecting the dots, actually informs us as we make decisions, as we uh, vote, as we uh, make choices about uh, how we use land and and where we build a house and and uh, what sorts of resources we use and don't use. Truth, beauty, and goodness, of course, are things that that we talk a lot about in classical education. And all of us have, have seen photographs, or possibly you know up up close uh, in in a museum, beautiful uh, tapestries. And so the idea of a tapestry is that is I think an in instructive one as we think about a science curriculum. What can we point out about truth, about beauty and about goodness as we study the celestial sphere or as we study the atmosphere and meteorological processes, as we study earth science proper geology, uh, as we study the water cycle, as we study other chemical cycles like the carbon cycle or the phosphorus cycle, or the nitrogen cycle. These sorts of things are critical for, for students to, to start to grasp uh, truth that's out there, beauty that is inherent uh, in the natural world and goodness 
goodness that can appear in our decisions about how we care for what has been entrusted to us. I like to trace threads in as I as I weave this tapestry in the class that I teach. For me, there are two threads in particular that I like to uh, trace. And as I say trace, these are things that will be constantly intersected, constantly bumped up against as we go through our earth science curriculum. The two, two, two threads that I trace are, one, the anthropic principle. The anthropic principle says that the universe is finely tuned for human existence. The other thread that I trace is environmental stewardship. And the way that I put these together is that if we are to be wise stewards of the environment, this atmosphere in which we live, this geosphere on which we live, uh, the hydrosphere with which we are apart and interact, uh, the celestial sphere, all of these things, the biosphere, how do these things fit together? And if we start to recognize the fine tuning that's out there, then we have the responsibility to then steward that fine tuning. We have to first discover the fine tuning through our study of science in our doing of science, but then we also have to think about specifically how do we take care of that tuning? Again, I'm not talking specifically about preservation, but conservation. How do we use resources and not abuse resources? This is uh, of vital significance as we teach this content to our students. So tracing threads like the anthropic principle and environmental stewardship through the earth science class actually contribute to that goal of building up a wise citizenry, people who will make good decisions uh, going forward in, in their adult lives. This idea of intentional horizontal integration is also a part of uh, this tapestry, a critical part of this tapestry. How does our study of science relate to other disciplines? How does it relate to what we're studying in history class? Or how does it relate to what we're studying in language arts or, or in whatever class we're taking? How do these things fit together? With, with my own students, I like sometimes to talk about the relationship of science to the humanities as we think about the so-called Fermi paradox. Enrico Fermi was a, a great physicist who, of course, was involved in uh, making of the atomic bomb. But once he was going out to lunch with friends in the 1950s and he said, where is everybody? Where's everyone else? His worldview presuppositions were such that, well, this planet is is a very mediocre planet. Uh, there must be lots of planets like ours with conditions like ours. So there must be a lot of intelligent life out there. And yet he asked the question, where is everybody? If there's if there's so many planets that are that are like our planet that that have just so conditions, sort of the Goldilocks idea, just right conditions, then why aren't we actually encountering uh, other life forms from from other star systems. Uh, it, it's a paradox because of his worldview presuppositions, but this shows how something in science, the so-called Copernican revolution, led to an idea, an improper idea of mediocrity, 
that our planet is, is in fact mediocre and not special in any way. There are many, many different ways that horizontal integration can be done. Often just drawing in uh, colleagues from other departments and having them talk about the relationship of their discipline to science uh, is a great way of approaching uh, the subject. But there, there are many, many different things that we can do in our classes to, to make horizontal integration a reality. As I talked about the anthropic principle, uh, some of you may not be familiar with that. This actually could be a significant unit in your class or just a thread that you trace. But uh, this book uh, was originally written back in the 80s, The Anthropic Cosmological Principle by John Barrow and Frank Tipler. Uh, powerful, powerful book. There'll be a lot more detail on the anthropic principle than you will need for your classes. And yet, uh, the book, which is a, is a massive tome, is uh, just a testimony to the winsomeness and the explanatory power of the anthropic principle. So I commend that book to you. Another book uh, that sort of drives home this point of the anthropic principle is this book by Ward and Brownlee, Rare Earth. And the idea that they, that they point out, as you can see from the subtitle, is that complex life is uncommon in the universe for particular reasons. If you're curious about their background, uh, one of these authors is a paleontologist, the other is an astronomer. Uh, this is not some wild, uh, haired, uh, crazy notion, but as, as academic scientists, they're looking at why uh, it seems like maybe Earth really is pretty special. Our planet and, and the the context, the, the spheres and the interaction of the spheres on our planet is really quite uh, peculiar. Now, as you're thinking about cur curriculum as tapestry, uh, this is a book that uh, another book that I would commend to you uh, by my friend Ken Badley. Uh, you can see this is a, a Rutledge book from uh, 2019. It's, it's a pretty new book. And he uses design language think of architectural and construction design language uh, to help us think through how to plan a course. This is not less common this is in the universe plan. for particular reasons, the, the biggest picture sort of planning. What, what are we aiming to do in this class? And, and Ken's book is a powerful one, uh, and he's a delightful speaker. If you have a chance to, to call him and, and have him address you at your own institution about this idea of uh, curriculum planning using design language so that our courses, our units are in fact elegant. Uh, we want them to be elegant because we want our students to be uh, enraptured by the subject and we want them to, to see the significance of it without being distracted by any sort of clunkiness or, or unnecessary uh, awkwardness. Uh, that could be there because maybe some of our own lack of expertise, but badly helps us to, to work through those things, to think about those things, and to design classes that are courses that are elegant. One of the ways that I intentionally uh, integrate other subject matter uh, from other, other things is I use things from literature. Uh, this is Jack London's, or at le least it's attributed to Jack London, his credo, sort of the way that he approached life. Just think of this. I would rather be ashes than dust. I would rather that my spark should burn out in a brilliant blaze 
then it should be stifled by dry rot. I would rather be a superb meteor, every atom of me in magnificent glow, than a sleepy and permanent planet. The function of man is to live, not to exist. I shall not waste my days trying to prolong them. I shall use my time. You might have guessed when I would present this in my earth science curriculum. I present this when we're studying the celestial sphere, when we're studying our solar system. And as we're uh, grappling with the idea of, of space rocks, of, of things like meteors, meteorites, uh, and, uh, as we, as we think about things like asteroids and, and comets. Another piece of literature that I use is this great poem by Gerard Manley Hopkins, I Am Like a Slip of Comet. And in the poem, you'll see all sorts of ideas related to comets and how they relate to the planets. Uh, but this is just another one of those sorts of things that we can use to show that true knowledge really must fit together. Again, hearkening back to the diagram, of three realms of knowing. How does everything fit together? Why can we use things from the natural world to help us to understand things like life and death? And so uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins' poem here uh, does that so beautifully for us and, and leads to a lot of great discussions uh, in class with our students. My recommended scope and sequence you can see starts with the celestial sphere, uh, I move uh, actually after I've laid, laid the philosophical foundations in two to three weeks, I move to this celestial sphere. I spend a lot of time talking about our star, uh, the sun. And uh, after talking about the physics and, and what's going on in our star and how it relates to, to our planet, uh, we study things like the moon and we study things about the solar system, the planets of the solar system. And again, things like asteroids and comets, meteors, and meteorites. Uh, all of those things are a part of, of the study of the celestial sphere. And I spend about one and a half to two months on that. I spend another one and a half to two months talking about the atmosphere, uh, the study of the atmosphere, specifically uh, meteorological processes and, and forecasting. How do we understand weather data? How do we forecast uh, the weather? And how has that changed over time? We spend about two and a half months studying the geosphere, geology proper. And uh, this is my particular passion. But what I've found is as I have been thinking about the celestial sphere and atmosphere, I end up spending more and more time about those things because I see them as, in a sense, critical to our understanding of what's going on on our planet. But the geosphere, of course, as we study the geosphere, we're thinking about the stuff of the structure of the Earth and thinking about plate tectonics. We're thinking about mountain building. We're thinking of, of uh, why there's seismic activity in certain places, why there's volcanic activity in certain places, the interactions of plate margins and, and the role of plate tectonics in shaping our planet and its role even in how it relates to things like, like the carbon cycle. And the, these, are, these are critical things for, for young people to, to start to see just the, the connectedness of, of true knowledge. Again, the unity of true knowledge. Of course, in our study of the geosphere, we also talk about uh, the fossil record and how that can be used for understanding things about the past. 
And I've already recommended the book to you by McDougall, Why Geology Matters. Again, what we're doing now may have an impact, very certainly has an impact on, on the future of our planet. And so we can look at the past and we can see how different events in the past, how uh, human activity in, in, let's say, the last two centuries uh, could influence what's happening going forward. Obviously, climate change is a part of this, but that's not all. There's a lot more to it than that. Uh, the distributions of plastics, microplastics, how these things are showing up in even what would be considered pristine areas of our planet, showing up in tissues and, and, and organs of sea creatures and, and other creatures. So all of these sorts of, of things are uh, so helpful for helping our students to see the connectedness of true knowledge and the significance of their role in making decisions and how that affects the future of our planet. We usually spend some time on the hydrosphere at the, at the very end of the year. Uh, this has gotten a little bit of short shrift in my class in, in recent years, but one thing that I, I never fail to do in my class is to talk about the relationship of surface water to groundwater, uh, to understand the, the idea of aquifers, uh, to understand the idea of runoff, uh, why we have flood flooding in some places more than others, uh, how we can pollute, how we can kill aquifers and basically make those uh, unusable, uh, how we can seal aquifers. These are all things that are brought out in a discussion of this relationship of, of surface water to groundwater, how they relate one to the other. And of course, this is, again, the idea of spheres interacting, right? The uh, celestial sphere, celestial sphere, excuse me, celestial sphere giving us energy, right? All, most of the energy on our planet comes from our star, the, the sun. And so how does that energy drive processes in the atmosphere or in the geosphere or in the hydrosphere? And how do all of these things in, in, in earth sciences proper, our study of, of, astronomy of, of the atmosphere and meteorology of, of the geosphere and the hydrosphere. How do these things relate to the biosphere? We're a part of the biosphere, but we also influence, impact other parts of the biosphere. And so our, our choices matter, right? And they, it's, it's, it's back to the whole idea of, of truth and of beauty and of goodness. Are we making good decisions as we understand truth about the, the natural world? Are we making uh, wise decisions going forward that not only affect us, but might affect generations to come and the whole future of our planet? You'll note that the way that I set this up, there's a zooming in approach. It's starting far out in space, zooming into the atmosphere, then to the geosphere, and then more particularly, the hydrosphere. Uh, and I do this with a systems approach. By that, I mean, I like to help students to understand processes and systems, things that are particularly significant to us. Think, think about uh, the thing that I remember hearing about in my youth, this hole in the ozone layer. Why did a hole develop in the ozone layer, this thinning? Why did that occur in the ozone layer? Well, it was through the use, humans' use of chlorofluorocarbons and bromofluorocarbons that were used as propellants uh, in, in old aerosol cans. And so now we've substituted other substances that don't do damage to the ozone layer. 
people made a problem, right? Created a problem through their use of particular chemical substances. And yet, once they recognized the fine tuning of the ozone layer, could go back, ban those substances. And we've actually seen over the, since those substances were banned, we have seen a recovery of the ozone layer. The thinning that was once there is, is not as serious as it once was. And so this is the type of thing to, to drive home to our students, that what we're studying in earth science class, that it matters. It matters for how we uh, think about uh, the world of which we're a part, as we think about how these spheres interact with one another. And as we make decisions, whether we make those decisions directly, personally ourselves, or whether we're electing people who will make decisions, this is critical that they, that they have this, this notion of how everything fits together, that all knowledge, all true knowledge must cohere, and there must be this interrelationship. This is a university textbook that I could recommend if you would like to get more of an understanding of a systems approach to teaching earth science. Uh, the Blue Planet by Skinner and Merck is an excellent one. You can see the subtitle here is an introduction to earth system science. This is uh, probably an introductory level uh, course uh, or textbook for, uh, for an intro uh, geology course. And yet it is absolutely critical that we understand this interaction of systems. Again, the spheres that I've referred to uh, just a moment ago. The textbook that I recommend uh, for use with your students is from Centripetal Press. This was formerly published uh, by Novari uh, Science and came out in 2016. Uh, written by Kevin Nelstead. This is a fantastic book. This Centripetal Press imprint is specifically for use in places like public charter schools. And so I, I, I really highly, highly recommend this book to you. Tremendous resource. And it was one that I had the privilege of being a technical reviewer for. Finally, I want to point out just a couple of things uh, that I emphasize in my class, and that is I want my students not only to be able to do like a scientist, to be able to observe and experiment like a scientist, but I really hit hard this idea of talking like a scientist, reading like a scientist, writing like a scientist, putting our kids through the paces, as it were, to help them to understand why scientists must be able to communicate well, to analyze well, and to uh, be able to write, speak well. Something that we use at my school is uh, this idea path about asking questions, imagining, planning, creating, improving, sharing, seeing how, how what we're studying uh, fits together and how our ideas are being uh, informed uh, by our process. So I commend this to you. I thank you for your attention and I look forward to your questions and any uh, comments, feedback that you have for me. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Maitwoody, uh, for that presentation and for taking the time to uh, share that with us. Um, so we now have a few moments for some uh, Q&A. So since there's a small delay, uh, if you look to the right uh, of your screen in your display, you'll see a Q&A box. If you click on that Q&A box, you can then type in questions that you'd like to 
to ask Dr. Mitwitty. And uh, I went ahead and took the liberty of putting in uh, the first question, which has already been voted on. So um, Dr. Mitwitty, can you see the, uh, the questions there on the right-hand side? I cannot. Okay. Do you see a Q&A box? Uh, no, it's, it's actually not there on, on the screen. So I saw it previously before I, I came into the session, but yeah, I don't know where it's it is. There. Okay, well, I have it. So um, I'll go ahead and ask the question. Uh, and this is actually my question. It's, uh, I, why do you feel that, the, that earth science is given the short shrift, as you put it? Well, I think partially because so much emphasis, there's a lot of name brand recognition for, for things like biology and chemistry and physics. And many, many high school programs don't include earth science. And so it seems almost like kids stuff, right? It seems like the stuff that little kids do, but that we don't have to think about anymore. And I, I think this is kind of tragic. Sometimes uh, some of the earth science content, perhaps that we teach to middle school students, maybe they'll intersect some of those ideas again in an environmental science class, but they may, they may yeah. never have another class until they, they go to university that they cover some of the same things that, that I cover in my class. So I, I take pretty seriously the fact that I might be their only contact unless they choose to take an environmental science class, I may be their only contact for all of this, this content. And again, I, when I took uh, earth science, it was as a, as a ninth grader in high school. So it went on my college transcript, but that's sadly uh, not always the case. And so I think it, it some, something has to do with sort of subject recognition and maybe uh, an unintentional uh, diminution of the content of earth science because it's rather different from a lot of the other sciences. It's not, well, it's an historical science where we're, we're actually using things like rocks and fossils to, to understand things about the earth's past. And again, that could relate, of course, to the earth's future. So I don't want to belabor the point, but I think that we, we tend to, and I've seen it in some classical schools, they say, oh, they learn about the rock cycle. They learn about uh, the water cycle down in second grade. We, we don't even have that class, you know, at a higher level. And I've, I've heard people at classical schools say things like this, and I cringe. <laughs> so. Well, uh, one of the questions that came up is, uh, what grade do you typically teach earth sciences at your school? And uh, what, uh, what grades are the other sciences then offered? Well, uh, I'm brand new to my, my school here in Huntsville, Randolph School. At my previous two schools, classical schools in Texas, earth science was a seventh grade class. Uh, so let me, let me speak about, uh, since those were classical schools, I'll, I'll give you the kind of the, the sequence of the classes uh, there. It was seventh grade earth science, eighth grade physical science, ninth grade biology, 10th grade chemistry, 11th grade physics, and then when I was there, a 12th grade environmental science class, this year, that same school, the school that I came from in Fort Worth, uh, they're now doing anatomy and physiology in 12th grade. And they don't have, they don't have, it's not a large enough school to, to have uh, electives at, at the senior level. Uh, I think John Mays recommends that, that earth science be taught as an eighth grade class. 
Um, but at my present school, I'm teaching earth science to sixth graders. And it's their first specialized science class. It's all general science up through fifth grade and their first specialized science class is in sixth grade here at Randall. Okay, next question is how much, oh, sorry, go ahead. How much emphasis is placed on statewide standards when planning your integrated tapestry of a curriculum? Uh, not much. Uh, we, we talk about it some as teachers and we, we're cognizant of standards like that. Uh, Randolph has a pretty high, it's actually considered the, the top ranked uh, K-12 private school in Alabama and has a pretty good track record. And so they, they let the teachers uh, sort of uh, build, their, build their courses. And there's a lot of emphasis on uh, a lot of hands-on science in many of the classes. But as I've already indicated in, in my session talk, I really try to put my students through the paces when it comes through doing things like literature, literature search and writing and speaking. And I can give more detail about that if people have interest, but uh, sure, there's hands-on stuff, working with rocks and working with fossils, identifying unknowns, uh, but going from looking at a fossil to say, okay, what does this tell us about a paleo environment, for instance? And so I have some goals that, that may not line up with state goals, but I know that a lot of what I'm, the foundation that I'm laying is actually excellent for uh, helping them be ready for the next time that they'll, they'll hit these subjects. And the next question is, uh, when you make reference to the good, true and beautiful in relation to earth science, what do you mean specifically by the good and, and that definition relationship uh, to earth science? Well, I think uh, there are a few things. I, it's, it's a fairly, uh, widely held view that we need to help our students to see the wonder of, of the natural world, to, to not only be amazed by it, but to kind of uh, want to study it. And so uh, my understanding of things is that as I go forward, as I'm helping students to understand the interactions of spheres, of processes and systems, that naturally they will see those things as beautiful. They will, they will see those as beautiful. Uh, they will, uh, of course, at my school and at the strong emphasis that I have is that we're pursuing truth, we're seeking truth. And uh, so in the, in the pursuing of truth, as we come to see some of that fine tuning that's out there in the natural world in these processes and systems, we're going to see that that's beautiful. And if we want to maintain that, then the good is the decisions that we make about how do we go about maintaining that, that fine tuning that's out there. So my example of the ozone layer, but it could apply to, uh, you know, not fouling up aquifers or uh, land use decisions, or uh, again, resources that we should use or not use. Uh, should, we, should we ban fossil fuels or should we use them uh, with, with joy and, and uh, with abandon? Or should we work toward using more alternatives? And so these, these are the types of the good I, I actually see as the decisions that we're making as we encounter truth and as we encounter beauty, are we making good decisions? Are we making wise decisions about how we treat those processes and systems? 
Next question is, what are the differences between the planet Earth text from Centripetal Press and the earlier imprint of Earth Science, God's World, Our Home from 2016? Um, well, I have just gotten my copy of Planet Earth. And for this audience, I thought that it might be more appropriate to, to mention the planet Earth. But the, I have both copies. The one that I originally uh, reviewed was the, the planet Earth version. Uh, it just has some uh, kind of more theological content that might not be appropriate for, for something like a public charter school. And I think much of the audience uh, here in the, in the conference is, is, is in that type of situation. Uh, if you're in a classical and Christian uh, charter school, I would recommend the, the God's Earth. If you're not in a context where you would want to or are free to use uh, the, the Novari uh, imprint, use the centripetal imprint because the, the essential content is the same. Okay. Do you have a math prerequisite for entering your class? I don't. Um, but I've recognized that some of the things that my students are encountering in math class down the hall is, uh, really appropriate to the types of things that we're encountering in science. Uh, for instance, I, I was bringing up the whole idea of outliers and students are saying, oh yeah, I know what an outlier is. We, this, Mrs. Plucker talked about that. And so, uh, to, to look at a population and to realize that there are things that don't fit into a population. That's a, that's a pretty helpful concept. Um, but beyond that, a lot of what we're covering uh, is not critical to have uh, any kind of specific math uh, prerequisite. It would be helpful if they know how to, to do basic graphing, uh, plotting of data on an XY diagram, that sort of thing, because as we look at meteorological data, our school has its own weather station. And so we can actually look at meteorological data and then plot that to see variations in different uh, parameters over time. And so that is something that could be easily taught, but if the students already had that kind of a background, it would be helpful. Okay, so I have about two more questions and then we'll have to wrap it up. Um, we're coming up on our time. Um, do you receive a lot of questions about young earth versus new earth and, and how to reconcile the millions of years of old of fossils and the earth and the scientific explanations of how things come about versus creationism? Yeah, uh, that's excellent. Actually, at my previous two schools, I did a week long graded discussion on uh, old earth versus new earth views. Uh, you know, how, what, are, what are the presuppositions uh, behind a, a a biblicist view versus uh, a scientist view, and not necessarily trying to, to create any sort of uh, false dichotomy, but we looked at, at those sorts of things and talked about it as a graded discussion for a week. And it was one of the high points of the year. At my present school, I don't really feel like I have the freedom to, to kind of go in that direction. And so we haven't done that graded discussion this year. Although we do talk about different views toward uh, historical views toward viewing Earth's history, uh, one that I call stasis, one that I call catastrophism, one that I call uniformitarianism, and one that I call actualism. And then we also talk about philosophical naturalism uh, and just how miracles might fit into any of this. 
And so we talk about it in a very general, general way. But in my in my classical and Christian schools, yes, we we address that. And uh, the Nelstead textbook uh, in both imprints very definitely takes kind of an old earth approach. And obviously it is really sensitive to, to some of the students and some of their families. And so I try to handle that in, a, in an even handed and honest way and help them grapple with why different groups of people handle things in different ways. And the final question, um, earth science can be extremely engaging using tangible items and concepts like rocks, the study of rivers and weather. Uh, it is one of the classes that students can wonder, what balances do you strike between philosophical and concrete? Um, well, that's, that's a superb question. I have a, a pretty, you probably could tell from this procession that I have a, a fairly philosophical bent about things. Uh, on the other hand, at one of the very first things that my students do in a year is uh, have their first pass with unknown rock specimens. And by the end of the year, they're able to not only identify the minerals within that rock using the, the typical you know, physical properties that are, that are used in, in mineral identification, but then actually identify what type of rock it is. Uh, again, using some, some excellent tools that are uh, available as appendices in the Novari and, and centripetal text that I've recommended. Um, but these are not all just real simple identification things. Uh, some of these are pretty complex things. And so the students over the school year get the tools to, to actually understand, okay, what this rock is made up of, what type of rock it is, therefore what type of situation was necessary for a rock like this to form. Uh, this year I'm having my students do a poster with, with a fossil well, that where, where they'll get information about the fossil uh, formation in which it was found. And then they have to do the research to find out, okay, so what, based upon uh, what this fossil is and uh, uh, the uh, environment in which it was found, the formation in which it was found, what does this tell me about paleo environment? And those are, those are a couple of pretty significant things that we do that are very hands-on, uh, but also the, the philosophical foundations that we lay early on actually inform us about certain things, interpretations that we're going to make about uh, what we're studying, whether it be a rock or a fossil or, or something else. Well, Dr. Maywoody, that's all the time we have for questions, unfortunately. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us here today live. And uh, thank you everyone for participating in uh, this symposium. Um, and um, we look forward to seeing you for the rest of the day. Uh, again, thank you again, Dr. Maywoody. Make sure you check out the virtual attendee hub for any recommended resources that are related. Uh, and then join some of the digital rooms in the forum about 1.30 to discuss how we're gonna be working with um, um, other practitioners. And then if you get a chance, please complete the survey uh, and what you thought about the sessions. And thank you so much for your time.